Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we look at the state of world press freedoms and how it's darkened as the UK government approved Julian Assange's extradition to the United States. We're joined by managing editor of Shadowproof, Kevin Gastola, who will give us an update on the latest on the Assange case and what it portends for press freedom. Later in the program, we're joined by media scholar Nolan Higdon, who asks, vote blue no matter who, argues that Roe is dead and the lesser of two evils argument should die with it. We'll also discuss the January 6th media coverage. We'll also look at other current events in the state of our free press. We'll talk about why critical media literacy education matters. Tune in to the Project Censored show for an hour on Assange and the state of the free press. Created by criminal minds, political ties, habitualized alibis, skies, and other guys, democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we welcome back to the program Kevin Gostola, managing editor of Shadowproof, also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. You can see Kevin Gostola's work at shadowproof.com. And Kevin is no stranger to the Project Censored audience. We've been having him on for a long time, particularly around his journalism and whistleblowers. We have had him on several times this year to give us updates on the case of Julian Assange. And Kevin Gastola is actually just finishing a manuscript for a book on the Assange trial and the political case against him that will be out from the censored press later next year in March. But Kevin Gastola is joining us now to give us an update on what's happening with the Julian Assange case and its ramifications for global press freedoms. Kevin, welcome back to the program. It's good to talk with you again. Kevin, give us a quick background again, just in case people are unfamiliar, the backdrop to the case with Assange, and then we want to get to the details of what's happening and what's coming up. Julian Assange faces 18 charges that were filed against him while President Donald Trump was in office, and 17 of them are under the 1917 law, the Espionage Act. Maybe your listeners are familiar with the Espionage Act because of how extensively it has been used against leakers or or people who are whistleblowers, who were sources for the media, but he is the first journalist to be charged by the U.S. Justice Department under this law. Uh, He also faces a conspiracy charge of conspiring to commit a computer intrusion. And all of these charges come from the time in which he was allegedly communicating with Chelsea Manning, and they relate to the documents that were provided to WikiLeaks by Chelsea Manning. Of course, the U.S. Army whistleblower who was abused and mistreated while she was in confinement, both in detention, and then she went through some really rough treatment in Leavenworth after her trial. She provided documents about the Iraq war, exposing the uh, war crimes, exposing war crimes in Afghanistan, the day-to-day 
life of soldiers on the ground, the kinds of actions that were taking place in those war zones were exposed through these reports known as the Iraq and Afghanistan war logs. At over a quarter million diplomatic cables that were exposed that shined a light, a rare light on the inner workings and, and, and the corrupt dealings of State Department diplomats. And uh, then there were the Guantanamo files, these detainee assessment reports that showed uh, the false intelligence, uh, largely the false intelligence used to keep all of these Guantanamo prisoners at the military prison under the guise of fighting the war on terrorism. And the most vivid and perhaps memorable release was the collateral murder video of which he's not actually charged with releasing because it would be too embarrassing for the government to come after Assange for this video. But everyone who has seen it saw the stark video of the uh, Apache helicopter attack where U.S. soldiers are gunning down Reuters journalists um, and then going after a van with a father in there who had come to try and help people who were wounded, the Reuters uh, employees. These are the charges and, and these are the leaks. And this is all involves something that happened that was done over 10 years ago. And that passage of time is a key aspect of this case. And if I heard you correctly, Kevin Gostola, did you say that the collateral murder video is it won't be admissible or it, it's not something that can be brought in? Yeah, Julian Assange is not being criminalized for the release of the video. And so the other charges, you already said a lot of the charges relate to uh, these other files and Guantanamo and so forth. Is, is that going to be relevant or becoming public in the trials? Presuming that Julian Assange is extradited to the United States, a trial will focus on these allegations from FBI agents and or Justice Department prosecutors that are along the lines of claiming that these files endangered or exposed confidential human sources or informants to harm while they were in the Iraq or Afghanistan war zones. And that Julian Assange knew that this would happen and he did nothing to prevent it from happening. Of course, we've had investigations by media organizations like the Associated Press that looked into this claim that WikiLeaks had blood on its hands, and they've never been able to find any examples of, of people who could be directly tied to dying as a result of WikiLeaks publications. Isn't it the case also that there have been other high-ranking government officials I believe even in the Defense Department, that have basically said as much. Yeah, so there's been some confirmation from within the Defense Department. There's been people like former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. When he was the leader of the Pentagon, he walked back or downplayed the pronouncements that were being made by officials that were panicking over WikiLeaks and, and saying that they're hysteria was overwrought and that they, they they needed to dial it back basically or 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 that in the end it wasn't going to be the kind of costly thing for the US that everyone was claiming um, and I think that's proven to be true we know a decade later that the US really has had no setback as a result of these releases the war machine keeps turning and the diplomats are able to conduct, uh, their diplomacy in secret without any public oversight 
whatsoever. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean that countries they deal with are receptive to their agenda, but what it means is that you and me, we don't really know what's going on behind closed doors. And that includes not knowing the kind of strong arming that's going on, the sort of dealing that's going on to ensure that the UK hands over Julian Assange so he can be put on trial. So why don't we get to that? You wrote a piece, June 17, State of World Press Freedom Darkens as UK Government Approves Assange's Extradition. So we are to the point, even though that, and we can talk more about how this whole process against him has been a form of persecution and punishment. The whole road to prosecution has been a, a grueling one on Assange. But can you talk to us about the, this is among the most recent developments. Can you talk about then what this means and, and of course what this portends for Julian? On June 17th, we had the decision from the UK Home Secretary's office, that's Pretty Patel. Pretty Patel essentially put out an anonymous press release and refused to put their name to it. Shamefully, Pretty Patel won't even make the case that it's righteous and just for Julian Assange to be extradited to the United States or that it's necessary may be a better word for what you could hear from an, an official in the UK government, they let a faceless bureaucrat release some kind of a statement that paraphrased the legal criteria that the UK government is, is expected to follow and said, basically, you know, we checked all the boxes and our hands were tied and there isn't anything we could do. We had to authorize the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States, which is simply not true. This is a political decision. That is why it was sent to Pretty Patel's desk because it was no longer in the hands of the judiciary in the UK. They signed off and sent it to her. And then now it was for uh, the Home Office to make their political decision on whether they are going to move forward with the extradition. And there were all these objections that were raised and, and brought to her, which Pretty Patel did not care about. Over 300 doctors organized under Doctors for Assange brought to her the fact that he had a mini stroke back in uh, the fall, I think it was October, and that his health has continued to deteriorate, and that if he is extradited to the United States, he would likely go through cruel and inhuman treatment in a prison, maybe committed to taking his own life based on evidence that we heard in the extradition case. There were also groups like Amnesty International that had raised objections human rights objections. There's a coalition of press freedom organizations that organized, demanded to have a meeting with Patel, but they were shrugged off and were never given any time to speak to her about the issues with the Espionage Act in the United States and the kind of precedent that would be set for journalists, publishers, or sources by going through with this extradition. And, you know, on one hand, I acknowledge that Patel probably doesn't really care and also she was in the middle of her own scandal, which I don't think is exactly over. She didn't have a lot of time to address the issue of Assange because she was deporting asylum seekers to Rwanda and misusing dollars in the UK. And that was a scandal on its own that was rearing its ugly head for her and, and deservedly so. But she also is someone who supports 
expanding the authority and powers under the Official Secrets Act to go after whistleblowers and journalists. So she was never going to be very receptive to this issue of freeing Assange. But that being said, she never even pretended to care about what was being raised about Julian Assange, whether it came from his lawyers or any of the advocacy groups or any of these uh, institutions in Europe, like the Council of Europe or any of these European human rights organizations that are empowered by some sort of standing through the European Union to uh, litigate issues related to human rights that she didn't even say anything about any of the things that they were raising. And so now we're here and his legal team is going to file an appeal and that appeal will go to the high court of justice and it'll raise a new set of issues. And those new set of issues will be issues that have not been litigated yet in an appeal. And if the high court decides that they don't wanna hear those issues, then uh, it does move the clock closer to the time in which Julian will be put on a plane and brought to the United States. So, Kevin Gastola, does this also include UN reporter Nils Melsner? The reports that Nils has done on this case, I mean, those were ignored as well, the UN? Yeah, you can add Nils Meltzer and in his book and the work that he done in his reporting and the speeches about the psychological torture that Julian Assange has experienced and say that those have been entirely disregarded. And in fact, when he asked for them to answer his questions, they just basically shrugged it off. And then they went to the press and they claimed that the facts show that Julian Assange was never tortured without even engaging any of the evidence that had been presented by not only Niels, but the other doctors that accompanied him when visiting Julian Assange at Belmarsh in May of 2019. I just want to point out for listeners, too, that in your article at shadowproof.com, Kevin Gastola, you write over 300 doctors, psychiatrists, and psychologists under the banner Doctors for Assange sent a letter to Patel about the serious concerns and deteriorating health. You write about that. You also, of course, in your article, address Reporters Without Borders. Their director called the treatment of Assange shameful. Also, Amnesty International came out strongly against this. Put, it says it would put Assange at great risk and sends a chilling message to journalists the world over. So, Patel, you say shrug off. It seems like there's like a fortress around this person in terms of getting any kind of information in. I just don't think that she's willing to give herself the time to show any interest in the case because ultimately she knew how she would decide it. It was a foregone conclusion because every step of this process has privileged the diplomatic relationship between the U.S. and the United Kingdom and put that ahead of the human rights of Julian Assange. And to put this in a larger context that pulls in many issues in which we have all followed closely over the last 20 years, everyone remembers how President George W. Bush was able to call up Prime Minister Tony Blair when he needed someone who could be loyal and provide cover for the invasion of Iraq. And, and Tony Blair and others in the British government were there to 
help deaden some of the uh, blows that came from European countries who were upset. We could think of countries like France that were upset with the choice to move forward with the preemptive war against Iraq. And they stood by. And that is the role that the UK has played for the last two decades, if not before that. Also, and they have been a willing and abiding client state of the United States. And what happened in this case is that after the US government lost at the district court level, the US State Department under Secretary of State Antony Blinken intervened by sending a note to the foreign office in the United Kingdom. And there was a second one sent later. And they made assurances. And they also raised some claims about the importance of the diplomatic relationship. And that put an exclamation point on the need the UK had to go forward and ensure that Julian Assange was extradited. Because I think they know that if they were to challenge the United States, that it would come at a cost. And it would mean that the relationship diplomatically, the partnership that the U.S. and the U.K. has would become complicated. I'd like to remind listeners, you're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with Kevin Gastola, managing editor at Shadowproof.com. We're talking about the case against Julian Assange, and we'll continue that conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment today, we're speaking with journalist Kevin Gostola, managing editor over at Shadowproof, shadowproof.com. He also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure, and of course does the Dissenter newsletter. Kevin Gostola, before the break, you're catching us up on what's happening with the Assange case and the many charges against him. Where are we right now? I mean, I'm talking to you here. It's the end of June. What should we be looking for in coming months? I know that you are not a prognosticator. I know that you don't have a crystal ball, but you are intimately familiar with this case and what's been happening, not just with Assange, but other whistleblowers around the world. And of course, you'll be involved in the National Whistleblower Summit with us at Project Censored at the end of July. So we'll have more information on that. We'll be talking about this case there. Could you talk to us about what exactly is happening now and what the next steps look like? So there is the extradition case, and the extradition case gets the most media attention, and that's going to be crucial. And I'll continue to cover that with my dissenter newsletter, posting regular developments over at the dissenter.org. And the next thing we'll see is the legal team for Assange will submit their appeal, and then the High Court of Justice will decide whether they want to review it or not. And that'll be about issues related to whether the case is political, they'll get to challenge the misinterpretation of extradition law, the way the treaty was interpreted. Uh, They get to raise issues related to the press freedom and journalistic rights that Julian Assange should have based on the work that he did. These are all things people want to see his legal team defend. 
But I also make sure that people listening are aware that there is a criminal case unfolding in Spain. And that involves the Spanish private security company, Undercover Global, which we know had an arrangement at the very least to provide audio and video recordings of the embassy to the CIA. And Mike Pompeo in the last couple of weeks was summoned by the Spanish criminal court to provide information. And that is because that judge is aware of the Yahoo News report uh, done by Michael Isakoff and Zach Dorfman and Sean Naylor that they worked on, which had over 30 sources from within the Trump administration and uh, intelligence agencies in the U.S. government that shed some light, some unprecedented light on what was known and what Mike Pompeo and other CIA agents or officers were doing to develop secret war plans to kidnap or kill Julian Assange. And so this criminal case has been unfolding because of privacy offenses that were allegedly committed against Assange, his legal team. They've been collecting testimony from journalists, um, doctors, other people who were targets while they visited the embassy. The UK and the US are two of the only countries that are fighting, not willing to cooperate with Spain. Almost every European country has been willing to make people available to provide witness testimony, but the UK is actually blocking access to lawyers who are based in Britain um, and other people who were targeted. And then the US is refusing to provide information about um, internet addresses that can show who was actually able to access these audio and video recordings and, and where they were being accessed from. And also the US has been unwilling to cooperate unless the court compromises and exposes the identities of two whistleblowers who have given key information that was part of Julian Assange's extradition defense. So we're watching this and we're watching this unfold and it doesn't get all, any attention in the US press, but it is covered by El Pais in, in Spain. And a few independent reporters will cover developments like Consortium News, uh, Gray Zone, and uh, I occasionally get around to being able to post and cover new details. Uh, Declassified UK is a great organization in the UK that has done some coverage of this. But by and large, the US press and Western press, that includes The Guardian and The New York Times, unfortunately, do not seem to care too much about this case. And then the other thing I'll put on your listeners' radar as I conclude this part here is that there is a trial unfolding right now in New York as we record this on June 27th. And that involves the alleged WikiLeaks source who provided the Vault 7 materials to the media organization, which were hacking materials from the CIA. It does not look like Joshua Schulte was the source this is a second trial. The first one ended in a mistrial. He's now representing himself. He's been subject to barbaric treatment in a U.S. prison. He's been put under special administrative measures, which is likely a preview of what Julian Assange would endure if he's put in a, a jail here in the United States. But nonetheless, we follow it closely, or I follow it closely, because well, it shows the zealousness of U.S. prosecutors, you know, their unwillingness to back down. The New Yorker had a very, very good feature on Joshua Schulte, 
and and showed how essentially the U.S. government is probably scapegoating Joshua Schulte because they couldn't come up with anybody else and they settled on him since he was a disgruntled CIA employee. Kevin Gastola, in your piece, and this is, I think, what you were just talking about a few moments ago, I just wanted to read briefly a short paragraph for our listeners because I, I definitely think people should read this and maybe you can expand on it. There's two things, actually. One is that with Priti Patel in the home office, they actually made some claim that is no longer much of a difference between espionage and the most serious unauthorized disclosures. You write that that department regards journalism as an act capable of far more serious damage than traditional espionage. So could you comment on that first? I have to give credit to Mohammed Almazi, who is an independent journalist in the UK, and he did some work for us. There's a bill that is pending or has been up for consideration in the UK that would restrict press freedom called the State Threats Bill. This is coinciding with the expansion of the Official Secrets Act. And then the political backdrop for all of this is the war in Ukraine and this belief among governments that they need to stamp out foreign interference within civil society groups and foreign interference that's trying to influence politics in these countries and exaggerating that threat. Now you see people like Priti Patel who are saying that they need to go after people who might be representatives of a foreign power. This legislation for countering state threats, along with the effort to expand official secrets, is hugely alarming. But one thing that would happen if the state threats bill passes is that you could see someone who is accused of uh, representing a foreign power face potentially life in prison if they were accused of this successfully, if, if the case was brought successfully. So it's a national security bill that has been pending that has had support from liberal Democrats, or I guess you'd say the Labor Party in the UK, if people have a basic knowledge at all of them, there's like essentially the Democratic Party in the United States. And they're working on these so-called counter espionage laws that could be expanded, which would, we understand, be used to go after journalists and whistleblowers and, and anybody who had a political agenda. Like it would be used against lobbyists too, people who were representing the interests of countries like China or any other foreign country would be treated as foreign agents and could be essentially subject to this McCarthyism. It's clearly bills about censorship. There's no question that what this is about. The other thing that you did mention earlier too, but again, this is putting powerful names to it. You mentioned also in your article something called Operation Pelican, and you talk about how that's the name for the pressure campaign to force Assange out of the Ecuador embassy. And I know you just talked about that a minute ago, but you make some other interesting claims here, and I wondered if you could just talk briefly about those. Well, yeah, so Operation Pelican was this campaign that the Home Office was part of. And the reason I mention it in my coverage of the recent extradition decision is because you may be following along and understand that the Home Office was involved in just now authorizing the extradition. So you've got the office in the UK government that is authorizing the extradition involved in pressuring Ecuadorian authorities to push and force Assange out of their own embassy in London. It's incredible. 
And so there's a clear conflict of interest. There's no fairness on the part of the home office because they were involved in trying to purge Assange from that embassy in London. And then I referenced the great work of declassified UK chief investigator, Matt Kennard, who not only covered this pressure campaign, but also reported on Patel as somebody who was on the advisory council at one point for a right-wing group linked to the CIA called the Henry Jackson Society, which has from time to time since 2010 used their platform to get into the media and mount attacks against Julian Assange. And this Operation Pelican, by the way, is something that you've had officials that were in the government be a part of. Actually, the chief justice for the high court, which is now where Julian Assange will bring his fresh appeal, is friends with a high-ranking official who was part of Operation Pelican. They have a friendship that goes all the way back to their time in Oxford together. They've known each other for 40 years. This guy, his last name's Duncan, boasted about what he was able to do. He was in a room, an operations room, watching uh, video feeds of the effort by authorities to have Julian Assange removed. He was kicked out of the embassy in April of 2019. He was smirking. He was excited. He personally traveled to Ecuador to thank leaders in that government for what they had done to remove Assange from the Ecuador embassy. And so at all levels, whether you're looking at the legislature or you're looking at the judiciary or you're looking at the executive part of the UK government, much like in our own country in the US government, you see that there is no way you can have any faith or trust in the system to spare Julian Assange's life. And uh, we cannot expect, I suppose I end with this grim note of saying, we cannot expect any part of this legal system, whether it be in the UK or the US for that matter, although we haven't seen it tested yet, but we cannot expect that to spare Julian Assange, which is why it is so crucial for people who want to do anything to save Julian Assange and to ensure that the precedent for press freedom does not continue to get worse and worse. It's so important that people take the opportunity, if they get it, to confront people in the Biden White House, in Congress, and say to them that you object to what is being done by the U.S. Justice Department in their effort to bring Julian Assange to the United States and put him on trial. Absolutely important and essential information that you're sharing with our listeners. Kevin Gastola, again, Kevin Gastola is managing editor of shadowproof.com, produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast Unauthorized Disclosure. We've been talking about the case of Julian Assange, the political case clearly against Julian Assange. You can see Kevin's work at shadowproof.com. Kevin, where are some other places people can follow you or read your work? Well, I'll just quickly mention I do a weekly podcast with Ronnie Kalik called the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. And I think you covered everything else. The dissenter.org is the newsletter where I do the bulk of my work on whistleblowers and coverage of latest developments in the Assange case. It's a free newsletter and anybody can subscribe. Kevin Gastola, as always, thanks so much for the important work you're doing and for sharing it with our audience here at the Project Censored Show. 
Up next on the Project Censored show, we welcome media scholar Nolan Higdon. We'll talk about the state of our free press, and we'll do a roundup of issues going on in media around media, media censorship and framing. And of course, we'll also be discussing a little bit about the recent Supreme Court ruling on Roe v. Wade. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we welcome back Nolan Higdon, author and university lecturer. Higdon's areas of concentration include podcasting, digital culture, news media history, and critical media literacy. Higdon is a regular contributor to Savage Minds and a Project Censored National Judge and author of several books including The Anatomy of Fake News, a critical news literacy education. His most recent publications include Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. I co-authored that with Nolan. Also, he's co-author of the Podcaster's Dilemma, Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism. He is also a founding member of the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas. That's coming up again, the third annual in October. And in addition, he's been a source of expertise for many of the outlets that he routinely criticizes, including CBS, NBC, The New York Times, and the San Francisco Chronicle. So kudos to them for reaching out to someone like Nolan Higdon for expertise. But as we all know, they don't necessarily take Nolan Higdon's advice on the criticism he levels at the establishment press. Nolan Higdon, welcome back to the Project Censored Show. It's great to be here. It's always good to catch up with you, and you've been pretty prolific with many op-eds, many of the things that you're writing now getting picked up in a lot of different places. And also, Project Censored is launching dispatches from Project Censored on media and politics, which will be a bi-weekly column. You'll be a big part of that, writing a lot of those pieces, co-authoring a lot of those Let's start here with one of the pieces that you did just a couple of weeks ago, kind of foreshadowing where we are now. In fact, this was about a month, more than a month ago, you wrote this piece. Vote blue no matter who. You wrote well in advance of the recent Supreme Court hearing, Roe is dead and the lesser of two evils argument should die with it. Well, you and I are talking. I just want to let folks know this is late June. This is pre-recorded. When this show airs across the country, there will be other developments. But as far as we are now, it's only been a weekend since the Supreme Court has now reversed the Roe v. Wade case protecting abortion rights for women for half a century. Nolan, let's talk about the thesis of your piece here and the problems and challenges with vote blue, no matter who, and we'll kind of run down memory hole lane for some things people may have forgotten. The article came with great frustration. I'm sure the same is true with you, Mickey, and many of our listeners. Every four years, those of us who have a much more progressive agenda in mind are lectured about how we have to vote for like the milk toast corporatists that the Democrat puts in office, or somehow we're secretly fascist or sexist or racist or, or whatever the, the trope may be. And then, of course, with, without fail, the centrist gets in office, the Clintons, Obama, Biden, and they do nothing to protect or extend rights. They do nothing to further a progressive agenda. 
they basically just sit on their hands to the point that they anger the public so much that some sliver of them go over to the Republicans where the Republicans take office and actually erode those progressive rights such as Roe. And it's been quite frustrating to watch this, you know, for, for my entire lifetime be lectured, we have to vote for Democrats, where I would argue that withholding our votes from the Democrats until they deliver on a progressive agenda would be a much better strategy. And I think Roe is, is a prime example of this. Mickey and I, we were talking about this off air. People online say this as well. This Roe decision is going to dramatically ruin so many people's lives. It's going to ruin the trajectory of the country in ways we don't even fully understand right now. But for the Democrats, they don't look at it like that as all. They look at this as like a fundraising opportunity. They should be having serious conversations about how abortion rights are more important than the filibuster and how they should and can remove the filibuster to codify abortion rights. Instead, they're sending out fundraising emails telling people they need to vote for more Democrats in November. But again, more Democrats is not going to solve it. We need different Democrats. So I want to riff on a couple of these things here with you. You wrote in this piece over at savageminds.substack.com. Vote blue no matter who from mid-May. And you do write in here that abortion rights have been an issue exploited by both Democrat and the Republican Party. Half a century ago, you write, Republican leaders adopted anti-abortion rhetoric out of necessity, not morality. They saw it as a winning issue that could distract from their unpopular economic policies. It led to them passing a thousand restrictions on the practice of abortion. And in mid-May, they floated the idea of the national ban on abortion and we saw the Supreme Court now strike down the Roe case. So Republicans have been working this agenda for a long time. It's never been secret. Several justices during the Trump era basically had their fingers crossed behind their backs, apparently, when they were talking about how it was codified law or precedent or stare decisis. So, Nolan, talk a little bit about this. This isn't like a secret agenda, and the Democrats had that long to do something about it. I mean, if you've been alive the last 40 years and even just happened to pass by a TV playing CNN in an airport, you know the Republicans want to get rid of abortion rights. I mean, that, that is like obvious. It's not, you, not even worth us really saying or reviewing it. Everyone, every listener knows that. But Democrats, they've kept up a pretty healthy rhetoric about how they care about women's right to choose and they care about abortion rights. But not only have they done very little to protect those rights, in fact, they've oftentimes admitted that it's kind of a secondary issue to them. I mean, Obama had a super majority. He could have codified abortion rights, but he said it just wasn't that important as an agenda item. The very week that the decision repealing Roe was leaked a few months ago, Nancy Pelosi was out, James Clyburn too, were out campaigning for a anti-choice candidate in Texas. Tim Kaine was chosen as the vice president for Hillary Clinton, someone who has a mixed record on abortion rights to say the least. So again and again, this party has had an opportunity to protect abortion rights, and they have not. But they've been more than willing to fundraise off it to tell people that they're protecting abortion rights. And I'd like to use this opportunity to read a recent email that I received from Nancy Pelosi's office. And I'm going to read this as evidence for what you just said. Pelosi's office says, I need your immediate attention. Now that Trump's Supreme Court just ruled to rip reproductive rights away from every single woman in this country— how we act now will decide the future of reproductive rights. I don't say this lightly. We can either sit back and admit defeat to these far-right extremists, Lancey Pelosi's email says, or 
We can rise up, meet this once-in-a-generation moment, and marshal a response so historic that we make every last anti-choice Republican regret what they've done. Please, I've never needed your support more than now. Can you chip in $15 so we can win these midterms and finally codify reproductive rights into law? So shamelessly campaigning on it, Right, foreshadowing it, now campaigning on this issue, even though they were supporting an anti-choice person two months ago in Texas. Now it's all that. Now they have something to rally around in the midterms. But what have they been doing for the last couple few decades here? This is one of these tropes that's online right now, the evil Republicans. Democrats are in power right now. They have the power to remove the filibuster. And instead of recognizing that fact, what I see online is a lot of Democratic Party talking points going back to 2016 saying, well, if it hadn't been for Susan Sarandon or the Bernie bros, Hillary would have won and blah, blah, blah. Well, look, Hillary had um, such, such low support that the party actually had to fix the primary against Bernie Sanders. And this isn't some like upset, jaded Bernie voter saying this. Donna Brazile admitted that. She was in charge for the party of the investigation. Time and time again, the party has tried to force candidates down people's throats that they don't want, and then they're angry the voters don't vote for them. I mean, let's not forget our current vice president, Kamala Harris, couldn't get a single vote, so she dropped out of the presidential primary before the 2020 election, and they made her vice president, and they're now shocked that they can't get big support behind her for being the next president. So again and again, the party has no accountability for its own failures. It lacks an actual commitment to these principles, and it tries to keep blaming the Republicans. And there's there's a lot of negative to say about the Republicans, but at a certain point, Democrats, you need to lead. You need to be organized. You need through your actions to demonstrate you're committed to these principles and policies and achieve them. And we simply have not seen that in the last 40 years from the Democratic Party. Well, there's a whole lot of the repeat, some kind of recycling or rewording of this mantra, we're not them, from the Trump derangement syndrome. We're not Trump. And as long as we're not that bad, we're okay. And we're the only game in town. And uh, the Democrats ritually lampoon and marginalize and attack any third party candidates. They even suppress progressive voices inside their own party regularly. Project Censored, of course, covered those stories about the 2016 election, the purposeful squashing of the Bernie Sanders campaign. You and I actually wrote about both media bias, establishment legacy media bias, and party bias against Sanders in the 2020 election. So this has been documented. In fact, you and I put that in a book. So we know this. This isn't even something that's debatable, yet what we see coming out of the Democratic Party and the legacy press, particularly the liberal press, is that we've all got to somehow unite. We've all got to support these tepid, as you said earlier, milk toast kind of candidates, and somehow that'll fix Roe in the end. But again, I got to keep going back to this because I heard you say that something could be done now. They're in power now. This is the legacy of neoliberalism. It's about lecturing voters on what is impossible versus actually leading and getting things done. Look, you could get rid of the filibuster, you being the Democrats, and you could codify abortion rights. And for everybody who says, what about Joe Manchin? Look, leaders lead. Leaders convince people like Joe Manchin. Maybe Joe Manchin wants more money in his district. Maybe he wants to be secretary of the treasury, whatever. Leaders make deals to make things happen. They get things done. They don't just sit there and wither on the vine and talk about how, well, we just don't have the votes. Leaders lead. And the Democrats, they have the ability to pass these laws and leaders need to lead, such as Joe Biden. It's also the case, let's talk a little bit about the contemporary political landscape and the way media has been dealing with it. We know the media loves to go from one crisis to the next and it's fueled on outrage and sensationalism. 
But the Democrats aren't really running on anything or they don't appear to be running for anything that they have popular support for. Polls show again and again that people want better Medicare, want better health coverage, want Social Security. We see the public wanting better environmental protections. We, we see this all the time. Yet the Democrats act as if, well, you know, we've really got to throw our support behind Ukraine and we really have to investigate what happened two years ago at the Capitol. In other words, the Democrats seem to be purposely deciding to spend their time in other ways. So how much of that is cynicism? How much of that is actually part of the plan in your estimation, Nolan Higdon? In my estimation, I think that is the the plan. I mean, I think people on the left rightly point out that Republicans will push a bunch of culture war issues like repealing abortion, getting rid of Dr. Seuss, fighting CRT, all these kinds of things to get voters to vote for unpopular economic policies. Well, the Democrats do the same thing. They have really strong progressive rhetoric on being anti-racist and pro-woman and pro-choice, but they're never really going to achieve any of those things. Their real goal is to keep a corporatist agenda in place. So you get all that happy hope and change rhetoric during election season, but when it comes to actually governing, there's a small fraction of the oligarchy that they're going to serve while they're in office, and that's about it. And we, we see that time and time again. And again, people like Barack Obama had like veto-proof majorities. You could have got some of this major legislation accomplished. Joe Biden could have got $15 minimum wage accomplished. The Senate parliamentarian said they didn't think it was part of the reconciliation process, but that was a recommendation. That's not a law. Biden decided to follow the recommendation versus serve working people. So they always find excuses to not help working people, not serve on a progressive agenda. It's the Joe Mansions. It's the cinemas. It's never the fact that they can't lead, they can't organize, they're never held accountable. And every two to four years, the voters are told the same thing. Yeah, we know they didn't deliver, but they're not as bad as Republicans. So vote blue no matter who, lesser of two evils. And like sheeple, they follow the process and they're angry. We end up in the same situation. And somehow it's still Dr. Jill Steins from the Green Party, fault where we are today. And of course, the liberal class, is, as ironic and blasphemous as this may sound, they never have a problem trotting out Ralph Nader to crash and throw under the bus, ignoring how much Nader has contributed to civil society in half a century. Nader is basically invisible. They just pretend like he doesn't exist anymore except for when they can pull him out as the example of why Republicans win, because we don't have unity in the left, which isn't true. But you notice there's no accountability for failures. Hillary Clinton had the best team of neoliberals, and she lost to a friggin' naive guy who had never been in politics, a game show host. She lost an election, and so she manufactures this story that it was Russians, it was fake news, it was low voter turnout, it was the Bernie bros. None of these things were true. In her book, she lists each chapter to these different, let's call them conspiracy theories. But in reality... This was her. It was a cataclysmic failure. And still, there's no accountability. We're chasing invisible Russians and fighting fake news versus being like, hey, this, this milquetoast neoliberal just lost to a political novice who's a game show host. Carnival Barker for the worldwide wrestling folks. We're speaking with media scholar Nolan Higdon. He's a lecturer in history and media studies in California, author of Anatomy of Fake News and other books. We will continue our conversation about all things media with Nolan Higdon after this brief musical break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this segment, we're talking with Nolan Higdon, author and university lecturer in California, author of The Anatomy of Fake News, as well as Let's Agree to Disagree, and also The Podcaster's Dilemma. Higdon also writes a lot of op-ed columns, and he is helping spearhead one of Project Censored's new endeavors on dispatches from Project Censored on media and politics. So you'll be seeing articles from Nolan and the rest of us on the Project Censored team weighing in on, well, all things media and censorship. One of the things, Nolan, that you wrote about, we've been talking earlier about Vote Blue No Matter Who and the Roe case, the recent Supreme Court decision. I want to turn our attention to some more issues in media specifically. You wrote a really significant piece about CNN's epic failure in CNN plus it was such a failure that some of our listeners may not even know what we're talking about in other words it was such a CNN minus um, that it's uh, they've tried to rear view you know rear view mirror that stuff (laughs) because it was a total flop so first of all let's just talk about this what was CNN plus and what were these efforts? And again, this is part of a long thread that goes back to several of our conversations on the Project Censored show about legacy media ever struggling to remain relevant. Nolan Higdon. There's sort of two major factors occurring at the same time. One is you have a general distrust in legacy media in the early 21st century, which I would argue is correctly placed from disasters like the WMD lies that, that the media legitimated and things like that. Um, but you also have a new economic model of journalism taking place where subscriber-based models, fragmented audience, thanks to social media. And so legacy media is trying to find like, what, what is our new economic model for survival? And time and time again, these legacy outlets are losing audiences to quote unquote new media, these podcasts, these streaming shows, people like Joe Rogan are drawing in like 7 million people. So they look at this one, they think, okay, all these people online, they're not legacy media, so they must be liars. So they kind of just blanket statement call all these people fake news, which is misrepresentation. But even worse, they assume that it's the medium itself, not the content that is drawing audiences. So, well, if we just digitize CNN into an app, we can send the same legacy media garbage to audiences and they're going to love it. And so they create this CNN plus, you know, spend millions of dollars putting this thing together. They get people like Chris Wallace on major contracts from Fox News. They extended Jake Tapper's programming and Anderson Cooper on there. And they launch this thing and they get about roughly tens of thousands of subscribers, but nobody's actually using the platform. So it's an abysmal failure and they cancel it within weeks. For those who don't follow this industry that much, you you can't overstate how big of a deal this is. No decision is made just sort of one night over a table and they launch it. This is years in, in advance. They're putting this together. They're hiring teams. They're hiring shows. They're producing content. And they realize almost immediately like, oh, it's us. It's not the medium. And they cut it. Some of the details here, I think, are worth airing out. The inauguration for President Joe Biden, right, the ratings for cable news plummeted. Fox, MSNBC, and CNN lost 49, 37, and 35% of the audience, respectively. Between June 2020 and June 2021, CNN lost 70% of viewers in the 25 to 54-year-old demographic. These are riveting numbers. And so you go on to talk about how they sunk $300 million into CNN+, and they got 100,000 subscribers. Only 10% of that number were actually using the paid service. And you write that this made CNN's one-year goal of 2 million users 
and its four-year target of 18 million users seem a bit far-fetched. I mean, that's kind of an understatement. And then, of course, in spring of 2022, CNN Plus suspended operations. And to put those numbers in like context, some of these new media programs like Breaking Points will get like 800,000 views on their, their daily cast. Uh, Joe Rogan will sometimes get between four and seven million on an interview. So 10,000 for an established media outlet is a huge embarrassment. One, they definitely want swept under the rug as, as soon as possible. But as you point out, Mickey, with those numbers, this is just the larger trajectory of, of legacy media. People really forget, this has kind of been memory hold, but in, in 2013 through 2015, a lot of these big personalities in cable news were about to lose their shows and positions. And Rachel Maddow was one of them. Her viewership was dropping so much in the waning days of the Obama administration. Trump was like a savior for cable news because he gave them so much fodder, as we wrote about in the United States of Distraction. Just every day with some scandal or something you're not supposed to say or some tweet you're not supposed to send. And they could cover it and audiences couldn't get enough. And they positioned themselves as being the protectors of truth and journalism against Trump's lies. So people were paying more money in advertisers. As soon as Trump left, that all disappeared. It was back to where we were in the waning days, the Obama administration, where people were like, why am I watching this, this sort of like trivial nonsense? There's better free stuff on, on YouTube and, and there's better quality journalism on YouTube as well. And so CNN Plus just sort of found itself caught in those crosshairs. We have to get into a little bit to Brian Stelter. So talk to us about him and his role at CNN. Yeah, he's one of the most entertaining propagandists for cable news. He runs a show called Reliable Sources every Sunday, and I highly encourage you not to tune in. What he tries to do is basically call out the media or call out lies. Of course, really what it is is an apologist for CNN and, and legacy media. Most famously, he was trying to cover up or excuse the fact that Zucker and, and the network there at CNN had knowingly sort of been working to, to hide Andrew Cuomo's corruption, both his political corruption and the accusations of, of sexual harassment and sexual assault by using his brother's show. If you're really holding the media accountable, that would be a time for Stelter to point out this huge, huge conflict of interest. Instead, he, he went on Colbert's late night show and he said, well, we didn't know how to react. There was nothing in like the journalism book for this. And it's like, look, man, journalistic ethics books have existed for like centuries and conflicts of interest are one of like the most basic things journalists learn in like journalism 101. We teach journalism and one of the first things that comes up is the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics and the four pillars clearly ensconced in them is the problem of, of not just conflicts of interest, but even the appearance of a conflict of interest. That case is just completely baffling. You do write about several other epic CNN failures, whether it's their coverage of Hunter Biden's laptop, whether it's the multi-million dollar suit that they, they ended up having to pay out for Nicholas Sandman that we've written about or smearing him in the public eye wrongfully and out of context. Let's not forget their fake stories about how the Russians hacked a Vermont power plant, which they never did. We could go on and on here. So Stelter, and wasn't he also involved in in a recent documentary about fake news that CNN put forward? He helped create a documentary. And again, it was sort of the, the same thing. They rightly point out that there are people online who do lie and do create false information, fake news, baseless claims. And they point all that out. But the problem with the documentary, of course, is like, if you just tune into CNN and read the New York Times, you'll somehow avoid any fake news in your news media diet. But as we've documented for years, and, and Project Censored even longer than the both of us has documented, these stories do make their way into legacy media. 
all the time. And so if you're really going to combat false information and propaganda, you need to take the same critical eye to legacy media that you would take to media online. But I do want to circle back to that Cuomo story because I think that's most fascinating. People forget that he was treated as the hero of the pandemic. Well, this guy was corruptly taking contracts with old folks' homes to keep old folks in these homes, even though they were at high risk for catching COVID. And the news media, CNN in particular, were sort of portraying him as like the Democrats' Trump. Like, this is the guy who could fight Trump. And if if Biden falters, we could go with Cuomo because we would, you know, God forbid they would ever go with like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. So they were really propagating this guy while covering up his corruption to push him as a political candidate. And after like four years talking about election meddling, that, that really seems like election meddling to me. Nolan Higdon, thank you so much for joining us today on the Project Censored show. Nolan Higdon, a Project Censored judge and contributor, a university lecturer here in California, is author of The Anatomy of Fake News, as well as The Podcaster's Dilemma, and Let's Agree to Disagree. Nolan Higdon, thanks so much for joining us again today on the Project Censored show. Thanks for having me. We want to smash, crash, blast, smash, blast the system. We want to get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting. We want to make it clear, we ain't scared. This is the vision we want. And that does it for another episode today. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010. I am Mickey Huff, executive producer and co-host of the program, along with co-host and associate producer Eleanor Goldfield. Special thanks to Anthony Fest, our longtime senior producer, and the man behind the curtain. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. You can find any of our previous archive programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org and see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. Last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Habitualized alibis, skies and other guys of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for why taxing all the prisons and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. In the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening.